This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. Our first show tonight is from the series Philo Vance, a fictional character featured in 12 crime novels written by S.S. Van Dyne. That's the pen name of Willard Huntington Wright, published in the 1920s and 1930s. Now, during that time, Vance was immensely popular in books, movies, and on the radio. He was portrayed as a stylish, even foppish dandy, a New York bon vivant possessing a highly intellectual bent. Well, here's tonight's episode, entitled The Cellini Cup. John Emery, star of the Broadway success Angel Street, as Philo Vance in S.S. Van Dyne's murder mystery, The Case of the Cellini Cup. Good evening. I am Philo Vance, occupation criminologist. And tonight I'd like to tell you the adventure of the Cellini Cup. As I pieced this fantastic and incredible story together later, it started something like this. In the East 70s of New York City, deep in the gloomy shadow of the 3rd Avenue L, is a dingy little second-hand store called the Old World Curio Shop. It's about 10.30 at night. The front of the store is filled with the usual miscellaneous rubbish, but in the back there's a rather a good workshop. There's a light on there. The man is hunched over a workbench, repairing the enamel on, of all things, a cloisonne elephant. This man is Paul Getman, about 43. Rather heavy set, oily complexion, little pig eye, smug and self-satisfied. But a clever workman. An unpleasant man, but then he hasn't long to live. Although he doesn't know that. <laughs> There's a discreet knock on the door at the front of the shop. Oh. He gets up and walks through the store to the door. Oh, it's you. What do you want? Well? Hey, hey, put that gun down. Someone's liable to get hurt. <laughs> Wait a minute. Take it easy. What are you going to do? No. No, you don't dare. You can't get away with it. That's murder. For God's sake, don't do it. Well, why don't you say something? What are you waiting for? I know. I know what you're waiting for. You're waiting for the elevated train. You're waiting for the elevated train to drown out the sharks. Well, I got back Carlo Vance will be back in a moment. But first, you know when a friend of yours gets a new house, you naturally want to go and see it. Well, an old tried and true friend of yours, Raleigh Cigarettes, is living in a brand new house, and you really ought to see it. Because Raleigh's new house protects you by protecting Raleigh's. How? This new house is an exclusive new package, which gives up to 400% more protection than the package on other leading brands. This means that Raleigh Cigarettes come to you factory fresh. Never harsh and bitter, always rich in flavor and fresh. Smokers, you'll thank me for this if you follow my suggestion. Make your next pack Raleigh's, America's freshest cigarettes. And now, here is Philo Vance to tell you the story of the Cellini Cup. 
Thank you, Mr. Shirley. Well, to explain how I got involved in this, John F.X. Markham, the district attorney, is an old friend of mine, and bright and early the morning after Getman was murdered, uh, much too bright and much too early, Markham came over to my apartment and dragged me over to the old world curio shop to view the mortal remains of Paul Getman. Sergeant Heath of the Homicide Squad met us at the door. A businesslike frown on his broad, pugnacious features and gestured toward the body. Well, here he is, shot through the heart. Doc Baker examined the body and pulled a thirty-two slug out of him. I would have bet my shirt it was a forty-five. Made a big hole going in. Hmm, so it did, Sergeant. Well, signs of a struggle. Who found the body, Sergeant? The patrolman on the beat. The burglar alarm went off and he came running. Looks like Getman set it off himself. There's a button right here on the counter, and we found Getman's thumbprint on it. Look at this, Markham. What's that, Vance? This utterly atrocious tie Getman was wearing. Imagine the embarrassment of being caught dead wearing a purple horror like this. I thought it was kind of snappy. Sergeant, you distress me. I've never seen you out of your uniform, but I'll wager you're a panic. Now, Vance, let's not get into a discussion of what the well-dressed corpse should wear. Calm yourself, Markham. Ah, what have we here? A little circular bit of charred cloth. Must be a clue, eh, Sergeant? I already seen it. I figured whoever came in here to bump Getman off hid the gun under something. Maybe a handkerchief. And when he fired, this piece of cloth was blown off. Figured that out myself. Not bad, huh? Sergeant, you've been going to night school. Suppose you tell us what you found out about the late Mr. Getman. Okay, he was in his early 40s. He owned this shop. He did repair work on fancy art objects for the museum and art dealers. And he was pretty good at it, I guess. He had a little apartment at the Windsor Arms, and that's about all. Hey, looks like a customer at the door. That's his second today. Markham, isn't that George Henry Howard? Yes, it is. The art collector? Yes, but there's more of the collector than the artist in him. Before the war, he traveled over Europe sweeping up statues, porcelains, tapestries, and so on like a vacuum cleaner. Between George Henry Howard and William Randolph first, the museums on the continent were left looking a trifle seedy. Let him in, Sergeant. Okay. Well, well. Mr. Vance, isn't it? How are you, Mr. Howard? Fine, fine. Never better, thanks. Mr. Markham, our district attorney and champion of justice. Oh, how do you do, Mr. Markham? And Sergeant Heath. How are you? How do you do? Is uh, Mr. Ketman here? Yes, but he's not speaking to anyone. He was murdered last night, Mr. Howard. Murdered? Really? Oh, definitely. Well, that's too bad. From my standpoint, as well as his, I wanted to buy a group of items in here. Uh, will his death interfere with selling them? Well, that would depend on whether there were any heirs and so on. Oh, yes, of course, of course. Well, there seems to be a few pieces of some value in this case. Let's see, there's the triptych, the cloisonne vase, a copy of the Cellini cup, this beautiful German horizontal clock with hunting scenes in relief, circa 1600, I'd say. And quite right you are, Mr. Vance. Mm. Uh, by the way, Mr. Markham, I'd like to put a deposit of, uh, say, 4,000 on the contents of this case just to ensure my getting it. I'd top any bid by 250. Could I do that? Well, we'll have to take that up after the investigation is concluded. All right, fine, Mr. Markham. Thank you very much. If I can be of any help. Thank you. But all right. Goodbye. Goodbye, Mr. Vance. Goodbye, Mr. Vance. Goodbye. Four thousand bucks for that stuff? I could do better at the five and dime. Yeah, worth about two thousand. Oh, Sergeant, you mentioned another customer. Oh, yeah, before you got here. A man by the name of Hans Hendricks. An art dealer, he told me. Oh, yes. The Hans Hendricks Gallery is on 57th Street. Anyway, he came to pick up an art object Getman was repairing for him. He had a receipt for it, so I let him in to make sure it was here. But I didn't let him take it. Oh, I'll answer it. Maybe my office. Well, um, what do you think of this, Sergeant? Oh, I got a theory. When there ain't no clues, I always say what the French say. Church a femme. Church a femme. Uh, Church a Femme, eh? Yeah, in French, it means look for the dame. Oh, thank you for the translation, Sergeant. That's okay. That was the office, Vance. Swacker tells me they got the license number of a car that was seen here last night. Well, now we've got something concrete to work on. I have nothing very exciting to do this afternoon. Suppose I take this gentleman and scholar, the incredible Sergeant Heath, and the two of us will trace that license number to its lair. <laughs> Yeah. 
It's like I tell you, Mr. Vance. You don't have to be no genius to solve murders. All you do is ask the right people the right questions. Providing one can find the right people. Well, we sure got a lot of information so far. The owner of the car rented it to a guy named Tony Carpini who lives in Queens. Yes, and this Carpini had a date last night with a girl named Norma Allen who lives in Flushing. Church A-Fam, huh? She'll be in Mr. Markham's office tomorrow morning. I'll pick up Carpini and we'll... Well, we'll ask questions and solve the murder. You make it sound delightfully simple. Yeah, it's a cinch. I guess I know how to figure these things out instinctively. Sergeant, you've been most instructive. Oh, that's okay. Well, now, let's get on to the Hans Hendricks galleries. I'd like a few words with Mr. Hendricks. Please sit down, Mr. Vance and Sergeant Heath. Thanks. Now then... I'm at your service. Well, Mr. Hendricks, I'm looking for one of your messengers in connection with the Gatman murder. A guy called Tony Carpini. Ah, so. Unfortunately, he is no longer in my employ. You mean you fired him? Yes, this morning. So you are looking for Tony, eh? I'm glad I got rid of him. If I'm not too inquisitive, Mr. Hendricks, why did you dismiss him? I did not trust the man. And, of course, you had excellent reasons for not trusting him? He had quite a temper. Just lately, he was very surly. Not a man to trust with a gun. A gun? Did he carry a gun? My messengers often deliver valuable pieces. I believe I saw in the papers that the bullet was a thirty-two. Yeah, that's right. You may be interested to know that Tony's gun was a thirty-two. I, I, I have it here in my desk. Well, well, right in your desk. Now, that's convenient, Mr. Hendricks. He turned it in when I discharged him. Yeah. There you are, Sergeant. Thanks. I'll just take this along. Where did Tony keep the gun? After work, I mean. In his locker with his uniform. I presume he had a key to the delivery entrance? And he could get in at night if he wanted to? <laughs> Easily. Uh-huh. Well, thanks, Mr. Hendricks. Oh, uh, say, before I go, my wife wants an extra chair for the living room, and I noticed that one by the door as we came in. And the sergeant sat in it, bounced in it, slumped in it, and finally decided he and the chair were soulmates. It's that carved chair with a needlepoint upholstery. Of course, of course, I know the chair. How much are you asking for it? It is priced at $575, I believe. Holy cow, I can get the same thing at Ludwig Bauman's for $3175. Well, thanks again. Not at all. Goodbye, gentlemen. Goodbye. All right. Now we're really getting somewhere. And without none of that fancy uh, psychology of yours either, Mr. Vance. That guy Hendricks was pretty helpful. Wasn't he, though? Almost too helpful. Well, what's the news this morning, Markham? You look like the cat that swallowed the canary and went proudly around hiccuping feathers. Well, Vance, Sergeant Heath's out tracking down our man now. I told him to bring him in as soon as he located him. And who is the man? <laughs> I never thought I'd hear Philo Vance ask that question. You usually know who the man is. So nice of you to say so, old fellow. You know, Vance, a gun scratches its individual signature on bullets that leave the barrel. So we compared the bullet that killed Getman with a bullet fired from the gun that that messenger, uh, Tony... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, here it is. Tony Carpini. The bullets match perfectly. Looks like he did it. My dear Markham, it only proves that a bullet fired from his gun brought about Getman's untimely demise. Vance, you're splitting hairs. Splitting hairs is a hobby of mine, Markham, old boy. A hobby that I thought I shared with all members of the legal profession. Yes, Mr. Markham. Uh, send Miss Allen in. Yes, sir. Ah, that would be our femme fatale, the Cleopatra of Flushing. <laughs> from Swacker's voice, I'd say she left him goggle-eyed. Ah. Oh, uh, come in and sit down, Miss Allen. Yes, thanks. I'm Mr. Markham, and this is Mr. Vance, a sort of special assistant of mine. A pleasure, Miss Allen. Oh, likewise. We'd like to have you tell us what happened the night of the murder. Well, I had a date with Tony, and we drove around a little, and then we parked, and he started talking about me going out with Mr. Getman. He got sore, and I told him that we would have to consider our acquaintanceship at an end because I had become engaged to Mr. Getman. Gee, I've only been engaged eight days. I didn't even get a ring. Mm. And what was Tony's reaction to the news of your engagement? He was wild. He was mad. 
He threatened to kill me and Paul. Uh, that's Mr. Getman. So I asked him to be so kind as to take me home. Yes, sir. Uh, what time was it he brought you home? Uh, about quarter to eight. Oh, he did it all right, Mr. Markham. Oh, thank you very much, Miss Allen. And now... Uh, just a moment, Markham. Miss Allen, how long have you been, uh, dating Mr. Getman? Oh, about four months, I guess. I met him when Tony had to deliver something to his shop to be repaired after hours, and he took me along. Paul fell in love with me at first sight. I'm considered very attractive by men. Well, obviously. And you liked Mr. Getman very much, I presume. Oh, indeed. Indeed, yes. I, I've always wished to travel, and he was going to take me to South America after the duration of the duration. Paul knew lots of important people, too, if you know what I mean. I'm afraid I don't. Well, like Mr. Howard, the art collector. Paul took me to one of Mr. Howard's cocktail parties. Gee, it was swell. Nobody was there who wasn't somebody. Vance, don't you Just be patient a moment, Markham. I even talked with Mr. Howard himself in person. Oh, he was swell. And he showed me some of his collections. You know, etchings and things. When I told him Tony worked for Mr. Hendricks, and I knew all about art from what Tony had told me. I what... see. And uh, you and Mr. Howard got along very well together? Oh, sure. I told him all about Tony and I and Paul, and he laughed and laughed. I was a big hit at that party. Gee... I guess I'll never get to travel after what Tony done. Oh, I imagine another man will come along and be blinded by your charms, Miss Allen. Yeah, I suppose so, but maybe he won't be no gentleman like Mr. Getman. Hey, will you stop shoving me around? Here's Carpini, Mr. Markham. He was out on the town last night, but I grabbed him when he came back to his room. Had his bags packed and was all ready to skip town. Tony, what did you do it for? What did you do it for? You spoiled everything. I didn't kill him. You did, too. You said you were going to. Uh, Shut up, will you? I hate you. I'll never give you another day. Will you shut up? I tell you, I didn't kill him. I didn't have nothing to do with it. You did, too. You're a murderer. That's what you are, a murderer. (laughs) Oh, he hit me. Cut it out, Carpini. Let's go with me. It's her own fault. She started it. Take him away, Sergeant. Okay, Mr. Markham. I guess he's a man, all right. What'd I tell you, Mr. Vance? Churchy fam. Churchy fam. Come on, Carpini. Oh, nuts. Here, use my handkerchief, Miss Allen. Oh, gee, thanks. You're awfully nice to me. Ah, not I, Miss Allen. Some other gentleman. Well, Vance, are you convinced now? Not entirely, Markham. So I think I'll trot along and see if I can comb a little information from George Henry Howard. Are you going now? Yes, Miss Allen. But before I depart, I think you may be interested to know that Mr. Markham is a bachelor and a very eligible gentleman. Hmm? Confidentially, he's fascinated by you. No kidding. Why, Mr. Markham. Vance, what's the idea? Bye-bye, Markham. Oh, sit down. Sit down, Mr. Vance. Thank you, Mr. Howard. A very pleasant den you have here. (laughs) Yes, I like it. I see the cases along the walls are filled with the ripe fruit of your continental travels. Some beautiful things. You like them, eh? Well, when I saw something I wanted, I got it. Of course, these cases represent only a fraction of my entire collection. Now, uh, these two curved swords are nice. Creases, they're called. I picked them up in the Malay States ten years ago. Sharp as razors. And an exquisite pair of old dueling pistols. I suppose they are dueling pistols, aren't they? Oh, yes, yes. I got them in France. Beautiful inlaid gold work on them. And you'll notice they're identical in weight, shape, trigger pull, everything. Had to be, you know, to make the duel fair. Amazing. And I suppose these little cloth patches are for cleaning the guns. That's right. That's quite right. Well, what have we here in this case? It looks like a copy of that Cellini cup in the Metropolitan Museum. Yes, it's a good copy, too. Yes, it is. You have a whole case of ivory figurines, I see. Mm-hmm. I collected them for a while. Only a few of them have any real value. By the by, Mr. Howard, I came to ask about Hans Hendricks. You've had dealings with him, I suppose. Oh, yes. You see, Getman's murder is pretty well pinned on one of Hendricks' messengers. It was his gun. Please don't repeat this, but it occurred to me that Hendricks also might have access to that gun. Oh, I see, I see. Do you know... Do you happen to know whether Hendricks and Getman got along all right together? Well, as far as I know. Of course, Hans is a shrewd Dutchman, and he's an art dealer, too. I gather your opinion of the integrity of art dealers is not too frightfully high. (laughs) You never can tell, Mr. Vance. You never can tell. Mm. 
Well, thank you, Mr. Howard. You've been most helpful. Well, Tony, nice cell you have here. Don't be funny. Tony, I'd like to ask you a question or so. Yeah? You trying to help me? Yes. What's your angle? Well, Tony, I'm of the opinion that jail is an unhealthy place to be. If you answer a few questions, I may be able to help get you out. Okay. What have I got to lose? Did Mr. Hendricks know about your trouble with Miss Allen and Getman? If he did, I didn't tell him. He might have found out from Getman, though. That's right, too. Did Mr. Hendricks ever give you anything to deliver to Mr. Howard? Yeah, a couple of times. And that Mr. Howard is a right guy. And how did you come to that conclusion? Well, you see, I delivered a vase about a week ago, and there was a party going on. Mr. Howard was pretty tight, and he spilled two drinks he was holding all over me. Oh, Mr. Vance... Oh, just a moment, Sergeant. Go ahead, Tony. Well, he took my clothes and gave me one of his silk bathrobes to wear and had my clothes dried while I sat in the room. Then he gave me ten bucks. I thought that was okay. Hmm. Now, Sergeant? I found out if Mr. Markham was in his office like he asked me to. He is all right. Thanks very much, Sergeant. You're a noble custodian of the law. I'll be right... Go right up and see him. And thank you, Tony. Don't worry too much. Vance, for heaven's sakes, what did you bring me here to the museum for? Stop fretting, Markham. I wanted to lift you out of the hurly-burly of your mundane world, far from the madding crowd's ignoble strife, and to transport you to the cool halls of this temple of art. Now, what sort of nonsense is that? Once in a while, you've got to get away from jangling telephones, noisy courtrooms, and intellectuals such as the good Sergeant Heath. You've got to get away and enter this world of beauty and quiet and romance. Look at the Etruscan shield in this case, Markham. Yeah, very nice. What stories it could tell. How many heroes buckled it on and strode bravely into battle shouting some barbaric cry? Yet, here it is today, still full of beauty. Ah, here's the Cellini cup. Remember, there was a copy of it in that case in Getman's shop. Benvenuto Cellini. Artist, writer, swordsman, adventurer, the gay lover of the Renaissance. And over here... Now, Vance, you're not going to take me on a conducted tour of the Metropolitan Museum, are you? I've got work to do. All right, Markham. I have a few things to do myself. But if you and Sergeant Heath will arrange under some pretext for Howard and Hendricks to be at the Old World Curio Shop two hours from now, I'll turn over the murder of Paul Getman to you at the conclusion of a short lecture. While Philo Vance is preparing to expose the murderer of Paul Getman, may I take just a moment to speak about freshness and its importance in cigarettes? That's why Raleigh's are living in a brand new house. Raleigh's new house we speak about is a scientifically developed, highly protective inner lining that seals the Raleigh package. Protects Raleigh's more expensive, more gold and tobaccos against flavor-stealing dryness. Preserves Raleigh's full, rich, satisfying flavor. This extra safeguard provides up to 400% more protection. Yes, Raleigh's goodness is sealed in because dryness is sealed out. And this extra protection ensures Raleigh's perfection. Next time, get America's fresher cigarette, Raleigh's. And now here's Philo Vance. Well, Howard and Hendricks put in their appearance at the Old World Curio Shop on the dot of eight with Markham and Sergeant Heath. Howard was his usual jovial self, but Hendricks was quiet. And it seemed to me a little suspicious. I had chairs arranged around a table and seated Howard and Hendricks with their backs to the showcases. Markham tossed the conversational ball right into my lap. Uh, Mr. Vance will explain this meeting to you, gentlemen. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Well, you both have something you want to get out of this shop and knowing how complicated the legal machinery that Mr. Markham so valiantly protects is, I persuaded him to settle the whole thing tonight and save both of you the inconvenience of waiting for Getman's fares to be settled. Mr. Hendricks... 
I believe there's something of yours here in the shop that Getman was repairing for you. A large cloisonne elephant. And Mr. Howard, you wanted to buy the contents of one of these showcases, didn't you? That's right, Mr. Vance. Getman and I had already agreed on a price of 4000 Which seems more than fair to me. It's amazing, isn't it, how a small piece of lead can complicate the lives of a lot of people? Tony Carpini didn't simplify matters for either of you. Then he's the one who did it, huh? That's right, Mr. Howard. Church FM. I didn't know I had a man like that working for me. Funny, I always thought he was a nice boy. Well, I don't agree with Sergeant Heath's Church FM theory, as he calls it. I think the motive was robbery. There was one item in this case that Tony might have thought represented a fortune in itself. Just a minute. It was this item right here. Look, a copy of the Cellini Cup. This is what lured a man to the depths of murder. But it never will again because I'm going to smash it to pieces on this table. Don't do that. Don't, you fool. Stop. That's the real cup. That's the original. Stop it, you idiot. You're smashing one of the greatest treasures in the world. Sergeant Heath, you may arrest Mr. Howard for the murder of Paul Getman. Markham, the admirable Curry has just informed me that he will serve dinner in three minutes. Vance, you irritating so-and-so. Sit down and tell me how you knew Howard murdered Getman. His confession clears Tony, but there's still a lot of things unanswered. Well, there's no point in my being coy with you, Markham. Where shall I begin? Why did Howard kill Getman? His confession explains that, but suppose I put it in order. A. Howard was a wealthy art collector who wanted something he couldn't buy. The Cellini cup that was in the museum. B. Getman was a clever goldsmith who did repair work for the museum. He had access to the Cellini Cup. See? Howard bribed Getman to make a copy of the cup and substitute it for the original. But D, Getman made two copies, substituted one for the original which he kept, and sent the other copy to Howard, who E, for exterminate, decided to kill him when he found he had been double-crossed and did. Yes, yes, Vance, I know all that, and it's necessary to talk to me as though I were a child. Yeah, I'm not at all sure about that, Markham. Oh, go on, go on. What about the bullet from Tony Carpini's gun, matching the one that killed Getman? Stop giving me the story in driblets. Well, at that party Miss Allen went to, she mentioned to Howard that Tony had threatened to kill Getman, and Howard realized he had a perfect fall guy, shall we say. He ordered some items sent from Hendricks, and then Tony delivered it. Howard spilled the drinks on him. With a pretext of drying his clothes, Howard got a hold of the gun, took it to the basement, fired several shots into something that wouldn't destroy the markings on the bullets, then cleaned the gun and replaced the empty shells. Yes, but how did he shoot Getman with that bullet? Oh, very simple. Howard owned a pair of muzzle-loading dueling pistols, and he loaded one of them with a bullet from the gun. Remember that charred piece of cloth that was near the body? Yes. That was used to tamp the powder down. And remember Sergeant Heath remarked about the hole the bullet made? That it was large, and he'd guessed the bullet was a forty-five. Well, the thirty-two bullet was a little small for the gun, and it wasn't going straight when it hit Getman. Uh, Howard was an ingenious devil, wasn't he? Come, come, Markham, don't give him all the applause. Save a little for me. All right, you too are an ingenious devil. But what made you suspect Howard? A number of things. First, my suspicions were aroused when he offered twice as much for the contents of that case containing the Cellini cup as they were worth. Then it seemed strange that a man of Howard's position would invite Getman and his lady love to one of his parties. Of course, though, they were partners in crime. Yes, that seemed odd to me, too. It bothered me, and I dropped in to chat with Howard about it. Saw the dueling pistols and the little cloth patches. And also discovered to my surprise that he already had a copy of the Cellini cup. Why should he want another? So you took another look at the one in Getman's shop, found it was the original, and dragged me over to the museum where you saw a copy in place of the original. <laughs> Excellent. An astounding piece of deduction, Markham. I exchanged the cups with the full cooperation of two dazed directors of the museum, then pulled the psychological rabbit out of my hat. But why did you have me bring Hendricks over here to the shop, too? Well, there was a possibility that Getman might have gone to Hendricks with the cup, hoping to sell it to him and get some money in addition to what Howard had already given him. Who knows? Perhaps he did. And Hendricks had access to Tony's gun. But I was sure that a man who was willing to risk his life and reputation for that cup couldn't sit quietly and see it smashed in front of his eyes. Vance, you're an amazing person. I'm also hungry. Come, Markham. I see Curry signaling that dinner is served. 
I hope the chicken tetrazzini is good. Catching a murderer has given me quite an appetite. Stay tuned for The Bickersons next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for The Bickersons, a show created by Philip Rapp, the one-time Eddie Cantor writer who also created the Fanny Bryce skits for the Ziegfeld Follies of the Year. That goes back quite a while, huh? The show's married protagonists, portrayed by Don Amici and Francis Langford, you'll hear spend nearly all their time in relentless verbal war. The show tonight must ring a bell with some married couples, one of whom snores. <laughs> Give it a listen. From Hollywood, it's dream time. Ladies and gentlemen, the makers of Dream Shampoo are pleased to present the 12th in a series of new programs produced by Carlton Alsop and starring Don Amici. Blanche, let me sleep, will you? Danny Thomas. Progress. You call this progress? Kaiser is driving Fraser on on a motorcycle. And our glamorous dream girl, Frances Langford, who sings... The moon belongs to everyone. The best things in life are free. Stars belong to everyone. They deem there for you. Before dream. Right, never before dream could any shampoo reveal all the natural brilliance of your hair. Never before dream could any shampoo leave your hair so lustrous yet so easy to manage. When you dream your hair, you bring out all its sparkling highlights. When you dream your hair, you glamorize all its soft, thrilling texture. And when you dream your hair, you remove all luster dulling soap film and unsightly dandruff. More, Dream's rich whipped cream lather leaves your hair easier to set, easier to curl, easier to arrange right after shampooing. So, for lovely, lustrous hair, for all types of hair... Use Dream Shampoo with hair conditioning action. Never before Dream could any shampoo leave your hair so lustrous, yet so easy to manage. D-R-E-N-E, Dream Shampoo. And now, here is your host for the evening, Don Amici. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, and good evening. Francis, before you get away, I want to tell you that I thought your song was delightful. And Toby, your commercial was stimulating. And Carmen, your music was magnificent. Boy, you feel great tonight, don't you? Oh, I certainly do, Carmen. Do you realize that it's March? The month that heralds spring? Oh, I just love March. Beautiful March. Me too. In fact, I'm looking forward to every month this year. Romantic April, delightful May, enchanting June, exotic July. Carmen, you've got the soul of a poet. No, I've got an Esquire calendar. <laughs> well, I hope you and your calendar are very happy together. But as for me, I have spring fever. And... Francis. Yes, Don? I'd like to drop over to your house about 8.30 tonight. I'll put the top down on my convertible and... and oh, do... I'm so sorry, Don, but I sort of half-promised Danny Thomas I'd keep him company while he's experimenting with his new chemistry set. Oh, Francis, do you know what you're letting yourself in for? He won't pay any attention to you. 
He's had his eye glued to that microscope for three days now. Three days? Yes, that poor soul is trying to outstare a germ. <laughs> he hasn't got an ounce of romance in his body. Oh, I'm sure he has, Don. Did you ever notice his soulful round eyes? Well, did you ever see square ones? <laughs> Why, as far as he's concerned, spring is just... Oh, there he is now. The germ must have won. Danny! Danny Thomas! Isn't it wonderful, Danny? What's wonderful? Spring will soon be here. Well, Yeah, can't you feel it? Can't you feel those soft, balmy breezes? Does something to a man, eh, Danny? Oh, I know just what you mean, Don. You do? Yeah, it makes you want to get out the old kite and fly the tail off it, boy. <laughs> Say, uh, uh, Danny, have you, have you ever thought about girls? Oh, girls. They fascinate me every time I see them walking down the street in their dainty open-toed shoes. Sure, I, I think about them a lot. What do you think about them, Danny? Don't their toes ever get cold? <laughs> Look, Danny, when a fellow's your age, he doesn't spend all his evenings reading popular mechanics or building a speckled bird's egg collection. Doesn't romance mean anything to you? Of course it does, Don. If I may quote from the classics, in the words of the immortal Hildegard. She's wonderful, Hildegard. I should only wear my nose the way she wears her hair. <laughs> Je vous aime beaucoup, toujours le mot mon petit chéri. Oh, that's beautiful, Danny. What does it mean? If I knew, wouldn't I say it in English? <laughs> you see, what did I tell you, Francis? Danny, you ought to get yourself a girl. Ah, love is only for women. I've heard of a few men who are interested in it, too. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm afraid there'll never be any romance in your life. Ah, I guess you're right, Don. I'm kind of like parsley on a piece of fish. I look all right, but nobody wants me. <laughs> say that, Danny. I'm sure there must be somebody. Well, yesterday I did have kind of a date with the girl next door. We went to the movies and the three of us had a great time. The three of you? Yeah, me and my girl and the fellow I brought along for her. You brought a fellow along for your girl? Yeah, she makes me. She's boy crazy. <laughs> Obviously. He wasn't much of a fellow, though. A little on the dumb side. The dumb side. Yeah, what a dope. You spend 75 cents to see a movie and waste the whole evening hugging and kissing my girl. <laughs> Your girl? That sounds a bit like an overstatement. Oh, no, it isn't, Don. She told me that her heart belongs to me. She did. It's just that the rest of her likes to go out with other fellas. <laughs> Danny, maybe you better stick to your chemistry set. What do you mean? Oh, you're not with it. You're not on the ball. In everyday life, you're just not making any progress. Progress. Hmm. You know why I'm not making any progress? Because I don't want to. You think this age of speed and tempo is good for you? Well, frankly, I never gave it much thought. Um, give it some thought, Don. Progress. Have you seen the new 1948 cars? No, but I'd like to buy one. I can't afford a used car. <laughs> I'm serious about this. Things are moving too fast. You know, they say the two biggest features on the new cars are air brakes and unbreakable windshields. Now you can speed up to 200 miles an hour and stop on a dime. Then you press a special button, and a putty knife scrapes you off the windshield. Well, that's a handy gadget. Well, don't take it so lightly, Don. I mean, there's such a thing as too much progress. For instance, one of man's most priceless privileges, sitting down to dinner with his family... Simple little pleasure like that is in jeopardy. Why, the other day, my doctor showed me the latest invention in medical science. It's a little pill. Contains the equivalent of an entire meal. Soup, salad, steak, baked potato, choice of three vegetables, a cup of coffee and a big piece of apple pie a la mode, and two toothpicks. Ah, you're joking. No, I'm not. I tried one, but a horrible thing happened. When I took the pill, it was upside down. Well, what's so horrible about that? I ate the dessert first. What happened to the toothpicks? Don't be such a wise guy, will you? Oh, now, wait a minute, Danny. Progress has more good features than bad ones. Have you read about the new stockings for women guaranteed not to get runs? They're made out of cold wood and rubber. So what? Instead of runs, they'll get clinkers, splinters, and blowouts. <laughs> inventions, inventions, innovations. Why, years ago, when a woman wanted to go to sleep, she simply put on a nightgown and went to bed. Today, before she gets into bed, she puts on hair crimpers. Wrinkle erasers, dimple depressors, ear flatteners, nose straighteners. Uh, if a man wants to kiss his wife goodnight, he has to battle his way through $12 worth of hardware.
You know, Danny, you got me convinced. Let's both go back and play with your chemistry set. Now you're talking sense, Don. <laughs> Progress is all right, but it has to be harnessed. Now, look, I'd like to show you my new formula. It'll revolutionize present-day living. What is it? Beverage. Uh, what's it made of? Shh. <laughs> liquid. <laughs> mm, a liquid beverage. Yeah, I'll tell you about it. Mm. Now, with study and forethought, and research and more thought, I have discovered something new. My magic elixir is the wonderful fixer of anything that's wrong with you. I'll bottle it and I'll attain fame. The whole world will honor my name. Drink Thomas Cola and you'll whistle at the girls once more. If you're half alive and you're 95, Thomas Cola makes you feel like 94. Drink Thomas Cola. It has sparkle and it's cool and keen. I can't rave enough. You will love the stuff unless you don't like the taste of kerosene. Now, if you're looking gone and you're feeling duller, you really have no excuse. Thomas Cola will give your cheeks some color. Purple, blue, and chartreuse. Drink Thomas Cola. Fill your glass and take a healthy slug. It's a real surprise. Makes your spirit rise while the rest of you just lies there on the rug. Listen to testimonials from all over the world. From Milan, Italy, we hear from Mr. Antonio Garibaldi Tommaso. Well, I tell you. <laughs> I first tried Thomas Cola when I was 20 years old. <laughs> and today, 10 years later, I'm very happy to say I am now 30 years old. <laughs> Thomas Cola, that's for me. That's why I'm as happy as I can be. I drink wine until my top of she blows. And with the Thomas call, I always wash my clothes. And now we hear from the Earl of Thomas, one of the leading literary lights of England, being interviewed. Milord, if you had your choice, would you select wine or Thomas Cola? Wine or Thomas Cola, you say? Well, my lady. Wine, when aged in casks of choice elk, pervades my spirit like exotic incense. A thousand violins throb in my head. I am wafted in fleecy clouds to the seventh heaven above the seventh heaven. I respond to its delicacy of flavor with the infinite me that has existed throughout the eternities. Whereas, my lady, Thomas Cola... Yes? Yes? Thomas Cola makes me burp. Africa. Let's listen to Mr. Thomas himself addressing a group of natives. Ogla Ugwa Wambo Bola Zango Bango Thomas Cola Tanza Kango Lava Wao Nico Baka Mandaba. Not 75, but 100% true. Yes, it's 100% true. Green shampoo actually reveals all the natural sparkle, all the sheen, all the dazzling brilliance of your hair. Right. Never before, Dream, could any shampoo leave your hair so lustrous. Now, that's because Dream is not a soap shampoo, so can't leave dulling soap film on your hair to hide its natural beauty. And what's more, Dream does not dry out your hair. Instead, its fragrant, freshening whipped cream lather leaves your hair sublimely smooth, beautifully behaved, easier to set, 
and arrange right after shampooing. And Dreen removes unsightly dandruff the first time you use it. So, for lovely, lustrous hair, for all types of hair, dry, normal, or oily, use Dreen shampoo with hair conditioning action. Use Dreen at home or ask for Dreen at your beauty shop. Buy Dreen at all drug department or 10 cent stores in the familiar blue and yellow package. Remember, never before Dream could any shampoo leave your hair so lustrous, yet so easy to manage. Yes, your hair can have that dazzling sheen the very first time that you use Dream. Yes, your hair can have that dazzling sheen the very first time that you use Dream. Don Amici and Francis Langford as John and Blanche Bickerson with Danny Thomas as Brother Amos in The Honeymoon is Over. And here is lovely Francis Langford with a special arrangement of Sonata by Carmen Dragon and the orchestra. Sonata we promised you, Don Amici and Francis Langford as John and Blanche Bickerson with Danny Thomas as Brother Amos in The Honeymoon is Over, written by Phil Rapp. The Bickersons have retired. Mrs. Bickerson wrestles the bedclothes in sympathetic agony as poor husband John, victim of a rare type of insomnia which manifests itself in alternate periods of coma and narcolepsy, reaches the crisis during an acute stage of the ailment. Listen. Oh, dear, now he's scaring himself to death. 
Mm-hmm. Are you in pain? Are you in pain, Blanche? <laughs> What's the matter with you? What's the matter, Blanche? Stop repeating everything I say like a parrot. Why do you repeat everything? Hmm? Why do you repeat everything? You just said that. <laughs> I know I did. Why do you repeat everything? Keep repeating everything like a parrot. Very funny. I'll bet you're a riot with those broken-down friends of yours. I never want them in this house again. None of my friends have ever been in this house. Why not? Are you ashamed of me? I'm not ashamed of you. Then why don't you invite them here? Because they're a bunch of bums. They're not bums. When we got married, I gave up all my girlfriends. Why don't you do it? Okay, I'll give up all your girlfriends. <laughs> I wish we could meet some nice people. You should belong to a lodge or something. Why don't you join the Elks, John? I'll join next week. You say it, but you won't do it. Why don't you join now? What? Go on, get up and join the Elks. Blanche, are you out of your mind? It must be three o'clock in the morning. It's only half past two. Oh, why don't you let me sleep? You know I have to get up early. I won't let you sleep. Because if you sleep, you'll snore. Then you'll wake me and I'll wake you and we'll argue and I won't get any sleep. I promise I won't snore. You always snore. Week in, week out. On Monday you snore, Tuesday you snore, Wednesday you snore, Thursday you snore, Friday you snore, Saturday you snore. So what do you do tonight? Oh, <laughs> uh, what's the use? <laughs> He's having that dream again. John, John, you said you wouldn't snore. Yes, dear. Turn over on your side. Yes, dear. Yes, dear. What'd you say, Blanche? I didn't say anything. That was an automobile backfiring. Oh. John. Hmm? Close the window. It's cold outside. If I close the window, will it be warmer outside? Oh, get up and close it. I'm freezing to death. Put a pan under it. I'll have the plumber in the morning. John, I have indigestion. I've never been so sick in all my life. All right, Blanche. I'm awake. Now, what's the matter with you? I don't feel good, John. Call the doctor. You don't need the doctor. I'll handle it. Where does it hurt you? Right here, in the pit of my stomach. It's a shooting pain, and it comes about every five minutes. How long does it last? At least a quarter of an hour. How can it last a quarter of an hour if it comes every five minutes? <laughs> don't yell at me. I'm sick. If I say the pain lasts a quarter of an hour, then it lasts a quarter of an hour. Okay. I think it's that dinner we ate at the Goosebys. The fish disagreed with me. It wouldn't dare. <laughs> I never want to eat there again. Every mouthful was poison. And the portions were so small. Why, you ate like you were condemned. <laughs> well, you have to be polite when you go to dinner. I wish we hadn't eaten anything. I'm suffering so. Call the doctor. Oh, now, don't get hysterical. It's just indigestion. I know how to treat it. I'll fix you some hot ginger ale and oatmeal. Hot ginger ale? Make a new man of you. John Bickerson, I don't want any of your insane remedies. You treat me for indigestion and I'll probably die of liver trouble. Listen, if I treat you for indigestion, you'll die of indigestion. <laughs> now, do you want me to help you or not? Not if you're going to yell at me like that. You wouldn't yell at Gloria Gooseby if she got sick. Now, don't start with Gloria Gooseby. I saw you two at the dinner table playing footsies. Footsies. <laughs> you were so flustered when she smirked at you, you couldn't eat. I was not flustered. Then why did you put gravy on your ice cream? I always put gravy on my ice cream. <laughs> I love gravy on anything and you know it. And a likely story. Ah. And the gown that woman was wearing. She ought to be arrested. I think she purposely swallowed that fishbone so you could stroke her back. I didn't stroke her back, I patted it. And I'd have done that if she hadn't swallowed the fishbone. I mean, if she hadn't been wearing that gown. I don't know how Leo stands for it. He's such a wonderful man, and Gloria's always playing sick around him just to get sympathy. Uh... A lot you care what happens to me. Every time Gloria gets a headache, Leo hugs and kisses her and fawns over her. Why don't you do that? I'm never there when she has a headache. <laughs> I mean, why don't you fuss over me? Now, listen, Blanche, you're not sick and you know it. Well, I'm depressed. You're going out of town tomorrow and I'll be so lonesome I'll die. I'm only going overnight. I'll be back on Tuesday. 
you cared for me, you wouldn't leave me. I'm not leaving you. I have to go on business, and I won't be gone over 24 hours. Suppose a burglar breaks in the house and finds me. It'll serve him right. <laughs> now let me sleep. Please, Blanche, I have to make an early train. We've never been separated before. I'm afraid absence will conquer your love. Oh, no. The longer I'm away from you, the better I'll like you. I don't like the way that sounded. Well, what do you want me to say? What do you want me to do? Say, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. That's the most stupid saying in the world. What? Look at what happened to Mel Shaw. He left his wife alone for two weeks, and now he's the unhappiest man alive. And you know why? She was still there when he came home. Was not. Louise got lonesome and she ran off with the upholsterer. When Mel came home and found out what happened, he went right out and got so drunk, they had to take him to a sanitarium. Why, he ought to be ashamed of himself. Why? A man should wait at least a week before celebrating. <laughs> Good night. Don't be so smart. You might come home and find things changed, too. Mm-hmm. Go on. Stay away from home for a month. Stay away for years. See if I care. I'm only going for one day. Run all over the country. Go to Europe. Never let me know where you are. Just keep me sitting here wondering whether you're alive or dead. Blanche. Why don't you write to me, John? <laughs> now listen to me, Blanche. You have only one object in mind, and that is to keep me awake. I just want you to tell me you love me. I love you. Now, are you satisfied? How much do you love me? How much do you need? <laughs> $45. I saw the most stunning hat, John. If I get it, I'm sure I won't feel so depressed. $45 for a hat? That's a fine cure for depression. That'll start one. Women need those things to cheer them up. Look at Clara, my oldest sister. Every time she's in the dump, she buys a dress. I figured that's where she bought her clothes. I'm not giving you $45 for any hat, and that's final. Now let me sleep. Oh, I hate you. How my mother begged me not to marry you. She pleaded with me not to marry you. Your mother told you not to marry me? Yes, she did. Dear heaven, how I've misjudged that woman. <laughs> oh, you'll be sorry for this, John Biggerson. You just wait and see. Oh, please, Blanche, I'm so tired and I have to make a 7 o'clock train. That means I have to get up before 6. Why do you need so much time? Well, I have to pack my suitcase, don't I? You haven't got a suitcase. Oh, I have to. I bought a brand new one yesterday. It's in the closet. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. I put it there last night. I took it out this morning. What? Amos borrowed it. Oh, Blanche, he didn't. You didn't let that weasel take my brand new suitcase. I've never even used it. Don't scream so. You can carry your stuff in a paper bag. <laughs> paper bag? My suits will get all wrinkled. No, they won't. Amos borrowed them, too. <laughs> now, look, Blanche. I see no reason for you to carry on like this, John. Blanche. Amos is going on a sailing trip with some very important businessmen, and he won't hurt your silly old suitcase. Blanche. He has to have something to bring the fish home in. He's going to carry fish in my suitcase, and I have to put my clothes in a gunny sack. Well, stay home, then. I can't stay home. If you leave me here alone in this horrid house tomorrow night, I'll... All right, all right, all right. I'll call Amos. I'll have him come over and stay here till I get back. Put the lights on. <laughs> Honest Blanche, if I don't go on this trip tomorrow, I'm liable to lose my job. Hello? Amos, this is John. Hi, Jocko. What's new? Say, I, I want to ask a little favor, Amos. I have to go out of town tomorrow, and Blanche is afraid to stay here alone. Could you come over and spend the night? What's in it for me? What a chiseler. Is it worth a double sawbuck, Jocko? Okay, $20. And all the bourbon I can drink? All the bourbon you can drink. And can I bring a couple of friends over? Bring some friends. Take a note. You won't back out, Jocko. I give you my word of honor. Okay, I'll be over tomorrow. Uh, wait, Amos, when you come over, uh, uh, you might bring my new suitcase with you. I might bring it, but I won't. Because I already hocked it. Good night, Jacko. Ooh, how I hate that man. See what you make me go through just because you pretend you're scared to be alone? I'm not going to be alone. What? Mother's coming over to stay for the rest of the year. Good night, John. Oh, uh, no. This is Donna Michi wishing you good days, good nights, and good luck until we meet again. Everybody's talking about DREF, the greatest dishwashing discovery in 2,000 years. DREF, D-R-E-F-T, DREF. 
Procter & Gamble's Sudsing Miracle that gets dishes so clean they shine even without wiping. Yes, it makes even glasses sparkle like jewels. Draft simply can't leave any streaks on dishes the way all soaps do. Why, with Draft, your nicest glassware positively shines. Draft is kind to your hands, too. Get Draft in the bright green package. That's D-R-E-F-T, Draft. Remember, never before dream. Yes, never before dream could any shampoo reveal 100% of the natural luster of your hair. Listen next Sunday for another pleasant half hour with Don Amici, Danny Thomas, Francis Langford, Carmen Dragon, and his orchestra. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll be with me next week as I uncover more gems from the golden age of radio. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell, Paul Stringer, and Justin Eacock for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a wonderful weekend. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.